0: So, believe it or not, we are already almost at the end of Lent. Next Sunday is Palm Sunday, where we have this you know, kind of celebration, remembrance of the, the triumphal entry of the Lord into Jerusalem, the waving of palms, inaugurating the events uh, of, that, of his last week on earth, the week that would lead to his death and our life. And if you've been with us during Lent, then you know that we've, we've taken a bit of a different approach this year and focused our study on the Old Testament book of Lamentations. And I know uh, this has been a bit of a difficult journey uh, to make it through the rough terrain of this book's devastating poetry. And there were even uh, some of us commenting last week and this week in Sunday school that, boy, it'll be nice when we're, when we're done with this lamentation stuff. And, and I, I totally get that. And, and I, I feel it a bit too myself. This is uh, this is really difficult stuff, but, but hopefully by the end of Lent we will see and be able to claim uh, the power and the promise of this book, and especially the power of lament in our own lives, particularly since we live in this, uh, we talked about this culture of denial, a culture that, that leaves very little room for these uh, honest expressions of grief or doubt or anger or questions. But there are some things that need to be lamented. And the brutal honesty of these five very carefully crafted poems tells us something deeply true, I think, about ourselves, about uh, what it means to be human. But, for me at least, there is this, this burning question that I'm left with as I, as I read through Lamentations, as we've been when, uh, reading through it together. And that is, you know, what, what kind of God is this? Who is the God that is revealed in the pages of this book? You know, throughout the first three poems, we met a couple of different characters. There was uh, the narrator, whom we met right off the bat, and daughter Zion. They were both in, uh, featured prominently in chapters one and two. And then last week, we read uh, a bit of a speech from the man, this person that we called the strong man in chapter three. And all three of those characters seem to be wrestling with this question in the wake of such devastating trauma. Who is this God that we worship? And there are multiple perspectives voiced, and the individual characters themselves can't even seem to make up their minds. They vacillate between blaming the destruction of the city on the sins of the people or on daughter Zion herself, and then in the next breath, claiming that God is acting unjustly, as if God is some kind of vindictive monster who has abandoned his own people. And then last week we got what was our first and perhaps only glimmer of hope in the entire book. But that hope didn't last very long as the strong man fell back into despair very soon after. Now this week we have two speakers A narrator, again, though it's not clear if this narrator is the same as in the first two chapters, and then at the end of this uh, chapter, at the end of this poem, we have a collective speech from the people. All the people of Jerusalem speak out together. And this poem, this fourth poem, continues their despair as the narrator surveys the landscape of Jerusalem and continues to recount the horrors that plague it. So he begins... How the gold has grown dim, how the pure gold is changed, the sacred stones lie scattered at the head of every street, the precious children of Zion worth their weight in fine gold, how they are reckoned as earthen pots, the work of a potter's hands. Even the jackals offer the breast and nurse their young, but my people has become cruel like the ostriches in the wilderness." The tongue of the infant sticks to the roof of its mouth for thirst. The children beg for food, but no one gives them anything. Those who feasted on delicacies perish in the streets. Those who were brought up in purple cling to ash heaps. For the chastisement of my people has been greater than the punishment of Sodom, which was overthrown in a moment, though no hand was laid on it. Her princes were purer than snow, whiter than milk. Their bodies were more ruddy than coral, their hair like sapphire. Now their visage is blacker than soot. They are not recognized in the streets. Their skin has shriveled on their bones. It has become as dry as wood. Happier were those pierced by the sword than those pierced by hunger, whose life drains away deprived of the produce of the field. The hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. They have become their food in the destruction of my people." So the narrator takes us on a tour of the streets, highlighting especially for us the plight of the children, those who are supposed to be the future of this once great city. But based on his descriptions, it seems as though this city has no future. The precious children of Zion, who were once more valuable than gold, are now dying of hunger in the streets. Their mothers have no sustenance to offer them. The narrator envies those who were killed by the sword, for better to die by the sword swiftly than to suffer slowly and watch our nation's future starve. The mercies of the Lord, which were previously declared by the strong man in chapter 3, to be new every morning, seem to be completely absent here. And then the narrator offers his explanation for why this has taken place. He continues, The Lord gave full vent to his wrath. He poured out his hot anger and kindled a fire in Zion that consumed its foundations. The kings of the earth did not believe, nor did any of the inhabitants of the world, that foe or enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem. It was for the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests who shed the blood of the righteous in the midst of her. Blindly they wandered through the streets, so defiled with blood that no one was able to touch their garments. Away, unclean, people shouted at them. Away, away, do not touch. So they became fugitives and wanderers. It was said among the nations, they shall stay here no longer. The Lord himself has scattered them. He will regard them no more. No honor was shown to the priests, no favor to the elders. So the narrator is clear and unwavering here. God did this. It was God who brought this destruction upon us. God gave full vent to his wrath, poured out his hot anger, kindled A fire in Zion consumed its foundations, scattered the people. He regards them no more and shows no honor to the priests nor favor to the elders. God did this, but we brought it on ourselves, or at least someone brought it on us. It was because of the sins of the prophets and the iniquities of the priests that God, according to the narrator, did this to daughter Zion. Now this this represents actually a slightly different perspective than what we've seen in the first three poems. According to the narrator this time, Jerusalem is being punished for the sins of a particular group of people, the prophets and the priests, those in leadership. Now there was a hint earlier in one of the other poems that the people may have been led astray by the prophets, but even then they were still very clearly guilty of sin. They still brought it Upon themselves. Here, though, the people are barely mentioned at all. Their complicity may be presumed, but but the real blame lies with the prophets and the priests, who, according to the narrator, shed the blood of the righteous, though we're not given any more specific information about what their particular sins were. But again, that question haunts What, what kind of God is this? What kind of God punishes the people like this because of the sins of their leaders? And then the people interrupt. They speak up for themselves. But what they offer is not much more than a memory of the invasion, the invasion that took place that brought upon this all this devastation and expressing their hope for a reversal of fortune in the future. So as one, collectively, they begin to speak and they say, our eyes failed. "'Ever watching vainly for help. "'We were watching eagerly for a nation that could not save. "'They dogged our steps so that we could not walk in our streets. "'Our end drew near. "'Our days were numbered, for our end has come. "'Our pursuers were swifter than the eagles in the heavens. "'They chased us on the mountains. "'They lay in wait for us in the wilderness. "'The Lord's anointed, the breath of our life, "'was taken in their pits.'" The one of whom we said Under his shadow we shall live among the nations Rejoice and be glad, O daughter Edom You that live in the land of Uz But to you the cup shall pass You shall become drunk and strip yourself bare The punishment of your iniquity, O daughter Zion Is accomplished He will keep you in exile no longer But your iniquity, O daughter Edom He will punish. He will uncover your sins. So the people speak up together, not necessarily to defend themselves or to offer any sort of justification for what has happened, but simply to remember, to remember their pain together, to give voice to their grief and their loss and their suffering. And then they turn to their neighbors in Edom, the Edomites, and they command them to Rejoice and celebrate while they can, for this cup too shall pass to them soon enough. And then there is again just the, the tiniest recognition of a, even just a sliver of hope as the people recognize that daughter Zion will not be in exile forever. Her fate will become the fate of daughter Edom. So over and over and over again in this book, we've been confronted with the question, of who God is and what God is like. And competing and often contradictory interpretations of the events have been offered with with no clear consensus ever reached among the people. Did God do this? Was this God's doing? Was it because we sinned? Did we do something wrong? Did we do something to deserve this? Or or was it a failure of our leadership and God is punishing us? Were, Were we innocent? In this? Is, is God punishing us unjustly? And all of these questions raise the deeper question of God's character. What kind of God is this? Is God an abusive God? And if the answer to some of those questions is yes, then it seems like that might be so. You know, it, it, is God up in heaven keeping this Santa Claus style list of all the bad things that we've done? and measuring it against the good things. And if the scales tip the wrong way, then we become punished for our sins. Is that, is that how God works? And that might seem like a bit of a silly question, but uh, I think this conception or this portrayal of God is actually quite common, particularly in the wake of uh, enormous tragedies that take place, tragedies like the destruction of, Ju- of Jerusalem that these people here are dealing with. So after 9-11... Jerry Falwell said that pagans, abortionists, gays and lesbians, and the ACLU, among others, helped this to happen, that it was from God, judgment from God. In 2005, after Hurricane Katrina devastated so much of the Gulf Coast, and especially New Orleans, John Hagee said that God caused the hurricane to wipe out New Orleans because of the city's sexual sin. Just this past week, there was a radio host named Rick Wiles who said, that the drought and the looming water crisis in California is part of God's judgment on the state for its progressive policies. He said that the state is in the forefront of spiritual rebellion against God, citing chiefly abortion, homosexuality, pornography, the immorality of Hollywood, and so on, this litany of sins that the state is guilty of. All of this has combined, he said, to reach a level of depravity that has reached heaven and God had no other choice but to cut off the rain. So, he said, let's see how long Californians will suffer without water before they humble themselves, repent of their sins, and call upon God to save them. Is, is this really how we think God operates? Is this, is this really who we think God is? I mean, granted, Rick Wiles and Jerry Falwell and John Hagee are, are kind of an extreme of this type of theology, but... Uh, I think it's a bit more common and infiltrates us even a bit more than we might want to admit. And I think we have to say that it is an incredibly dangerous theology because if this if this is who God is, it tells us something very disturbing about the character of God. If this is who God is, then no thank you. But it does force us to think about what we do with texts like this. Texts like Lamentations that seem to espouse this type of theology, or at least perhaps suggest that God might in fact be like this. So what do we do with texts like Lamentations that might lead some to believe that it is suggesting an image of a God who could only be accurately described as abusive? Well, we can do what most of us prefer to do with this biblical text. We can ignore it, right? Put it kind of put it back on the shelf you know, stuffed in there somewhere between the prophets and, and not really read it anymore. Just, just kind of pretend that it doesn't exist and only read the stuff in the Bible that conforms to our ideas about who God is. But I think we can all agree that that is probably not the best option. It doesn't really work too well. Or we can accept that this, this is who God is and try to justify God's actions and, and vindicate God for enacting such suffering and in doing so, aligning ourselves with the Jerry Falwells and John Hagees and... Rick Wiles is of the world. I don't know about you, but that kind of God doesn't sound to me at all like the God of the Bible whose mercies are new every day, who is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, that epithet that's repeated throughout the Bible over and over again. God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Now, alternatively, I think we can affirm the value of these poems of lament while also rejecting the abusive, vindictive, and monstrous God who allegedly sends hurricanes, droughts, and terrorists to do his dirty work. So first of all, I I think it's important to recognize the variety of perspectives that exist within the book of Lamentations. What we have preserved in its poetry is this ongoing conversation among people who have just experienced unspeakable trauma. People who are right in the thick of suffering, whose wounds are still fresh, not even scabbed over. And they're struggling, not only with the question of what happened to them and why, but what they're supposed to think about God now. Who is this God? And as we've observed many times throughout these poems, unfortunately, God never speaks. God never shows up to clear the air and solve the mystery for them. There is no singular authoritative voice that speaks in the poems. We, the reader, are not left, however, simply to decide who is right. I don't think that's the point of Lamentations. Instead, I think what's being offered is an invitation into a conversation, an open conversation about the character of God. As I've said time and time again during Lent, Lamentations offers us no easy answers because it is a book that invites us into this sacred conversation. It not only expresses the depths of human sorrow and grief and teaches us how to lament properly, but it also calls us to participate in this ongoing sacred conversation. Scripture was never meant to be a monologue. It's not meant to simply be a list of doctrine and dogma. Believe A, B, and C, and you're good. Do X, Y, and Z, and you'll be blessed. But if you do QR and S, you'll be cursed. That's, That's not how it works. It's a divine dialogue, a continuing conversation that we are invited to participate in. Remember, we claim that the word is living and active, not that it's static and lifeless. So the point of Lamentations is not for us to adjudicate between the various ideas about who God is as presented here, but to participate in that conversation, to offer our own laments, to express our own grief, our own sufferings, to ask our own questions, questions that may haunt us, questions that we may not otherwise dare speak in church. And finally, I think it's important for us to remember that the closest we can hope to come on this side of eternity to knowing the full character of God is by looking at the fullest revelation of God, and that is Jesus Christ. We are in this season of Lent, and in Lent, we are reminded about how God's glory was revealed, not through acts of domination, not through might, not through violence, but through weakness, through defeat on a Roman cross. In the book of Romans, Paul says, Paul tells us that God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So you want to know who God is? You want to know what God is like? Look at him on the cross. And when we see, really see, the crucified God, we will see that God is not necessarily the one who causes suffering, but the one who suffers with us the one who weeps with us, the one who laments with us. God is not the one who sends the hurricane to punish the city. God is the one whose body is floating in the floodwaters, weeping over the city. God is not the one sending people to fly planes into buildings. God is the one who, like Todd Beamer on Flight 93, says, let's roll, and then gets up and sacrifices his own life to save the lives of countless others. God is not the one who flips the switch on the gas chamber, but as the Holocaust survivor Elie Wiesel observed, God is the child hanging from the gallows of the concentration camp. In 2 Corinthians, Paul also said, I resolve to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. So like Paul, we too should resolve to know nothing But Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Because when we look upon the crucified Christ, we look upon the God who suffers with us, who weeps with us, and who laments with us. Not the crucifying God, the crucified God. Jesus Christ. Amen.